0: Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back yet again to the Stump Plane Podcast. Folks, I'm very happy to be back with you recording on our usual recording, recording day, which is uh, Sunday the 24th. Uh, everybody, I hope you're all doing well. Uh, I hope you guys uh, enjoyed the episode last week on the O One one e Bird Dog with uh, Mark Foster. Thank you, to, um, thank you again to him for um, coming on my podcast and doing an interview with me back then, uh, then back last Friday, so everybody, I hope you guys are doing uh, well today, um, trying to put out some more content, I've been uh, trying to think about of what to talk about for our future episodes, if you guys have any ideas, make sure to hit me up on Instagram, just uh, stunt planes, maybe some jets, just nothing like, You know what? Just whatever's mine. So everybody, today we're going to be doing an afternoon performance on the F3F Flying Barrel. Now, uh, this is an aircraft produced by Grumman, a fighter biplane or a biplane fighter. Now, it's going to be our guest returning is Lieutenant General Lieutenant General Duane Thyssen. He is going to be giving a our presentation from the Naval Aviation History Museum. I hope you guys uh, enjoy it, and uh, yeah, so everybody, we are going to go ahead and play it, and we will talk to you guys on the back end. Hope you enjoy it.
1: Well, greetings, everyone. Welcome to another presentation of History Up Close here from the National Naval Aviation Museum. It's great to have you with us. My name is Dwayne Thiessen. I'm the president and the CEO of the Naval Aviation Museum Foundation. And each week on Tuesdays and Thursdays, our foundation will bring you another presentation of an aircraft or an artifact here in this wonderful museum of ours. We're very proud of this museum and everything that we have here for you to enjoy. And quite frankly, if you can't come to us, we want to come to you. So again, welcome to this presentation. Now so far, we've had three of these presentations. They're all online that you can find them uh, if you go look for them. Uh, This is the fourth one. So far we covered what I told you was the best aircraft ever, the AVA. And then Sterling Gilliam told you what he thought was the best aircraft ever, the EA-6B Prowler. And then last Tuesday, we had Hill Goodspeed give a phenomenal presentation about the B-25 Mitchell and its historical significance with a focus on Doolittle's raid over Tokyo. Uh, All of these, again, are available for your review online. Well, today, I want to talk about another one of my favorite aircraft, and that is the F-3F Grumman, the Grumman F-3, F-2. Now, I know we have a lot of experienced pilots in our audience, and we also have some very young people who are interested in aviation. I think I have some information that will interest everybody, and I look forward to your questions. Some very, very famous people flew this aircraft, and we'll talk about that in a minute or two. But as an airplane, the F3F uh, never really had a major role in any battle or in any national or naval history. Uh, But it was a critical airplane for reasons that I'm going to explain to you. It came into naval service in 1937. The Marine Corps and the Navy flew them. All told, there was about 81 aircraft, seven squadrons of them. It was on board our carriers. It had a tail hook. It was very much a part of the fighter force that we had afloat in the late 1930s. This airplane flew in the Naval Service all the way up to the spring of 1941, when huge things started to change for our country. Now let's uh, back up a little bit here, and let's look at this airplane and talk about it generally. First of all, it's kind of small. It's not very big, and it's actually not very heavy either. It's kind of stubby looking, stumpy looking, isn't it? The airplane really didn't have an official name that I'm aware of, but it did have some nicknames such as barrel fighter or beer barrel fighter because of its Uh, thick middle, uh, it's stubby looking appearance. On the front of the airplane is the engine, obviously, and it is the Wright Cyclone R1820. That is one cool engine. That is a great engine. And in honesty, what we probably ought to do is have a special presentation just on this engine. It was There were many different variants of the engine, but it was the engine for the DC-3, for the SBD, for the Wildcat. It was the engine that was used on the B-17. So this engine was used widely and had a whole array of power available to it. This particular variant had 850 horsepower. Now that's a lot of power for a short airplane like this, a small airplane like this. But if you look at the airplane, there's a lot of drag too. It's got this big frontal area. It's got all of these wires and braces and struts. It's got two wings. It's a biplane, so there's a lot of drag. This airplane had a max speed only about 270 knots which is 310 miles an hour and you say well that's pretty fast and it is but if you remember jimmy doolittle's story last tuesday he was an air racer before he went into the army air corps he had flown almost that fast five years before this airplane even came out so it was very powerful, it was very capable, it was very maneuverable, but it wasn't really all that fast. The airplane, if you swing around up front here, had two machine guns. This one was a 30 caliber machine gun, and this one over here on the right was a 50 caliber machine gun. That's a lot of power for a little airplane. This airplane also carried bombs under the wing. Under each wing, it could carry a single 100-pound bomb. Now, so why is this one of my favorite? I've told you about a lot of limitations. So why is this one of my favorite? Well, there's a bunch of reasons, and I want to talk about them for a while. Uh, first and foremost. I like the way it looks. I mean, look at this airplane. Many times, if you go up to an airplane, you know right off the bat, that thing would be fun to fly. This thing looks like it could tear the sky open and it would be highly maneuverable, which is exactly what this airplane was. This airplane was the last of the biplane fighters. This was the last of the two wing fighters. After this, they all had a single wing or were a monoplane fighter. So this was the last of an era as far as the fighters. If you look at this airplane, this is an earlier Grumman. There were many improvements that Grumman made on this aircraft and when it came to this airplane over here, the F3F, Grumman refined them in a way that was very leveraging for the rest of history, and I want to talk about some of these things. Let's go to the, back to the front. First, it has a pressure cowl. This is cowl is the housing around the engine. Now, the reason that's important is it optimized the cooling air going around each of these air-cooled cylinders, which means that they could operate at a higher power setting without creating so much heat that they would damage the metal. This cowling allowed them to produce more power, more powerful engines. Another thing that's really cool is this right here. It's a counterweight constant speed propeller pitch control. As the speed would increase, as the rotation of the propeller would increase, these counterweights would seek their way forward. Inside this housing was a piston with an oil pressure head on it. By regulating the oil pressure resistance to these counterweights, the pilot could control the pitch of these blades so that he could optimize the power and the regime of flight he was in, the manifold pressure. The airplane is also skin-stressed. Another term for that is monocoque. What that means is that the skin was part of the strength of the airplane. Instead of building a frame and then putting a fuselage or a body around it, What we did is we took the skin of the airplane, put it around some formers, and the skin of the airplane was actually part of the strength of the airplane. So this is metal, and it's a very, very strong aircraft. The wings were still fabric. That's right, fabric. This aircraft had cloth wings. Now when I say cloth, it was a very light canvas. It was slightly heavier than the fabric in my shirt. And what they would do is they would stretch this fabric over the wing, they would stitch or clip it to each rib, about every inch, and then paste a uh, strip over the top of it. Then what they would do is they would cover this fabric with a butrate dope, which is a vegetable-based Uh, 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 liquid that would make it watertight and then they'd paint it. And that's what they'd call a wing. Both the top wing and the bottom wing are fabric. This is a fighter plane. You think that would stop a bullet? Nope. Wouldn't even stop a pencil. But in the end, it was very light and strong enough to take this airplane through the requirements that it had. Another thing that I like about the airplane is they refined the enclosed canopy. You could shut the canopy. Now that's pretty important if you're gonna fly at high altitude where it's cold or in the winter where it's cold, you could control the temperature on the inside of the airplane. Now I wanna shift your attention to some things that I think are really unique about this airplane and some things that people don't don't typically get to see. How do you start an aircraft where the propeller is so high that you couldn't swing it by hand to start it, and the starter, if there was one, was not strong enough to turn against all of that pressure? How, how are you going to do that? Well, what they did here is really kind of cool they had was an assist here where they would stick a 10-gauge size cartridge, much like a shotgun shell. It wouldn't have any BBs or wadding in it, but it would have a pressure charge. They'd stick it in that hole, close it up, fire that shell, which would then put pressure into the intake manifold. That pressure would go through whatever valve was open and force the piston to move, which would then start the chain of events required to make this engine run. It would start the mechanical fuel pump, which would pump fuel into the cylinders, and it would start the magnetos, which provided the spark, which ignited the fuel, and you could get this airplane started. Kind of cool, right? The other thing I really like here, is this right here the airplane has a retractable gear now i said there were some aircraft prior to this but this one kind of refined the process this tire and wheel assembly would go into this recess after they would take off and that would be that would reduce the drag that the aircraft had to go through now when you move something on an aircraft it's either mechanical or it's done with hydraulics in which case it's hydromechanical or in some cases it's done with electronics in which case it's electromechanical There were no hydraulics here and there was no electric motor here to raise this gear This tube you see here was brake fluid that went to the drum brake that's down in here so that didn't help it come up or down at all the way this gear was raised was by a hand crank in the cockpit that had to be turned 28 times the pilot had to crank this thing up 28 times Now. In order to understand how busy a pilot could be in this environment and some of the skill and and the uh, abilities that that required, what I've done is I have built a folding chair cockpit over here and my friend Rihanna is going to help me go talk you through how some of this worked. First off, to be a pilot, you need a cool hat. Why don't you put on that leather helmet? Oh, yeah. So the pilot looks perfect. Why don't you sit down in the cockpit? So, what's important here? The most important thing is this right here. That's the control stick. That is how you control pitch up and pitch down, the nose of the aircraft, and how you control left wing and right wing up and down, how you control roll. So go ahead and grab a that, hold of that. You never, ever take your hands off of that. You always have a hand on that. Over here, you might want to put your other hand. There you go. Here, on this particular aircraft, you had a mixture control, so that goes all the way forward, all right? And you had a throttle. All right. so now you're started and you want to take off, so you give it full throttle, you give it full throttle, now you're monitoring all your instruments, okay, and you really want to keep your hand on that throttle because that's very, very important, this power is what it's going to get you flying, as soon as you have airspeed, you pull back on the stick, Ease it back, ease it back, ease it back. All right, that's enough, that's enough. Now what you do is as you're flying, you have to raise the gear and the crank is on the right side. So which hand are you going to use? I have to raise the gear. You have to raise the gear. So what you're gonna do is you're gonna put this hand on the stick and then you're going to start cranking the throttle while you watch the instruments okay you got to adjust the power adjust the power that's fine okay now you go back to cranking how many times have you turned it seven you you had 28 right i think you had 28 28 times to get this thing airborne now my point here thank you my point here is the switching of hands at a very critical time in flight. At one of the most critical times in an aircraft, uh, in, a, in a flight, you those two being takeoff and landing, you have one of the highest workloads and you have to switch hands to get it done. Now, what I want Donald to do is go ahead and look in the cockpit, and I'll show you these in the real cockpit. Remember I told you about the control stick? That's the control stick for pitch and roll. And remember I told you about the crank to raise and lower the gear? It's this one right here All right. And I don't know if you could. Yeah, that's right there. That's a good picture. This is your throttle, and that's the mixture control that the pilot had to work with as they were taking off and as they were landing. Because when they landed, they would have to work this in opposite order. Now, earlier, I told you that some very famous pilots. had flown this aircraft. And I want to talk about that just a little bit. Uh, This airplane was flown by a lot of people prior to them going into war in 1941. One of the people that flew this aircraft was uh, uh, Edward Butch O'Hara. Butch O'Hara was an ace in the Navy. He won the Medal of Honor for his heroism in the Battle of the Coral Sea. Uh, He was a national hero, and they actually named uh, Chicago O'Hara Airport after Butch O'Hara and what he did for our country. Another person who flew this aircraft and talked about it was a guy named General Marion Carl. Marion Carl led Marine Corps aviation for many, many years. He flew in World War II, Korea. He was a test pilot. He actually actually, uh, entered uh, Vietnam. So Marion Carl flew this airplane. He was also an ace. He won uh, two Navy crosses, one for his heroism in the Battle of Guadalcanal. And he talked about this airplane. An interesting story of Marion Carl was that he was a flight instructor at one point here in Pensacola. He didn't particularly like being a flight instructor, but one of his students was a guy named Joe Foss. And Joe Foss eventually went to Guadalcanal, was one of our leading aces. Both he and Mary and Carl flew together and fought together in Guadalcanal. Another person that flew this airplane was a Marine Corps general by the name of Robert Gaylor. Now, when he flew this airplane, he was a Marine lieutenant. Uh, In 1940, in August of 1940, he was flying this very airplane. We know that because of the bureau number, 9676, that's in his logbook. He was flying an approach to the USS Saratoga, to do an arrested landing, and the engine quit. It had run out of gas. Basically, there's a valve inside of it that you switch tanks with, and that valve had failed. Well, he crashes into the sea, he's recovered, the aircraft remains underwater, he goes on, fights in Guadalcanal and through the rest of World War II, and wins the Medal of Honor. He also became an ace. This aircraft was found underwater in 1988, and then in 1990, there was an effort to recover it. So this airplane was underwater. This is that airplane when we pulled it up. This airplane was underwater for 50 years. It was then restored, and it is now sitting here as you see it and as it flew in that day Now, I told you this was one of my most favorite aircraft The reason it's one of my most favorite aircraft is because it looks really good and I like a good looking airplane It was really maneuverable and I like a very maneuverable airplane but more importantly This was the training aircraft, not a trainer, but this was the aircraft where some of the most important, some of the most highly skilled pilots that our nation ever produced and ever needed, this is where some of those pilots honed their skills and became the pilots they did in World War II. Thank you for joining us. I look forward to your questions about the F3F.
2: We do have some questions today. John asked, "Why did the Navy choose to stick to biplane fighters until the 1940s?"
1: Well, because they worked, okay? It was kind of the it was kind of the uh, the way that you could optimize carrier ops and other things and the maneuverability that you needed, but In reality, if you were gonna get the speed that you needed, you had to get rid of the, the other wing. And in fact, the successor to this aircraft, which will be featured at some point in this series, was the F-4F Wildcat. All of the enhancements of this aircraft were taken into the F-4F Wildcat, which was a monoplane, one wing, And that's the aircraft we went to war in the Pacific with. So Chip asks, how expensive was this to build versus jets today? Uh, I don't have any exact figures for you, but basically the whole fleet of aircraft would cost what one aircraft would cost today. So uh, these were not expensive to build. However, they were very, very man. Uh, uh, man hour intensive can you imagine the amount of time it takes to stitch this fabric to every rib as you go along here you see the fabric coming up a little bit Uh, this was very man hour intensive it took a lot of time to put these together or a lot of people in a given amount of time
2: Alan Cooley asks is this an aircraft in flyable condition
1: Well, the short answer is no. Okay, Uh, and it would be for reasons like the SPAR has not been certified or checked. The engine, I don't know what the status of this engine is. In most of our aircraft, we we, we, uh, remove uh, some of the rings uh, inside the engine, and and some of the sub-components of the engine would not be working. So the aircraft is real aircraft is original uh, but it is not in flying condition no
2: so we have a question from Ravi who is actually a former National Flight
1: Academy student he asks what happens if the landing gear stalls if the I assume his question means if the landing gear doesn't come up correct okay Well, then you got a problem hopefully it comes back down remember if you crank it up you've got to crank it back down 28 times all right if you couldn't get it all the way down or couldn't get it all the way up if you couldn't move it you had to land with what you had all right but i think in most cases since it was a ratchet and mechanical system the ability is pretty foolproof
2: michael asks us Was there a good amount of armor protecting the pilot back in these days?
1: No, no, very little, if any. If you look in the back of the airplane here, there was very little. Now, there were some aircraft subsequent to this that had very good armor, and I'm sure we'll be talking about it later. But, no, this aircraft was actually pretty frail. It only weighed about... uh, 3,200 pounds empty, and only had a 1,000-pound useful load, meaning fuel, ordnance, and pilot, and oil. All right. So, no, there wasn't a lot of weight, a lot of uh, space or weight allowed for armor.
2: So, Marty asks, how many F-3Fs did Grumman produce
1: for the Navy and Marine Corps? So, a total. Uh, now, keep in mind, just this aircraft, the F-3F-2. There were 81 seven squadrons there were marine squadrons and navy squadrons seven squadrons for a total of 81 aircraft like this
2: so on the heels of that one dave bradley asks do any f2fs
1: still exist um i don't think so not that i'm aware of And the F-2F, as it turns out, is a little bit of a different story. It was mainly uh, used by other countries. Uh, There was a series of aircraft between the FF-1 and this, but this was the primary one that I wanted to talk about because it refined so many of the issues that we needed in the fighters going into World War II.
2: So Gregory, along with a few other of our viewers, have asked, what's with the chicken clucking in the background?
1: (laughs) Okay, so I like a good mystery, and this is going to be one for you. When you have a chance to come here, you're going to see the history of naval aviation, and you're going to see more than just this aircraft. You're going to see aircraft over a span of 150 years. What you're going to want to do is come here. The exhibits includes a barnstormer exhibit, and it has some very interesting settings around it, which includes a farm pen with some chickens. So why don't you come here and take a look at it, the first chance you have. I think you'll enjoy it.
2: So Robbie asks again, have you ever flown this aircraft?
1: I have not. I have not flown this aircraft. But I'm telling you, I would love to. I would really love to fly this aircraft. And, and I think I told you because it looks so cool, to be real honest, this aircraft was very maneuverable. It could do very high rate maneuvers. It was extremely agile. And those kind of aerobatics are a lot of fun to fly.
2: So Ryan says, I think the USS Midway Museum has a Wildcat.
1: Does that also have a cranking mechanism for the landing gear? That's correct. The Wildcat, we have several in this museum. The Wildcat was the aircraft that followed this. It needs to be one of our presentations. It also had the cranking mechanism uh, to raise and lower the uh, the, uh, landing gear. My father-in-law flew this airplane, flew the F-4F uh, Wildcat, and he talked to me about what it took to raise and lower the gear flying that airplane.
2: So Robert asks, I'm curious, General, what aircraft did you fly during your time in the Marines?
1: So the aircraft I flew was an AV-8 Harrier, all right? I came in in 1974 and started flying the harrier in 76 so that 1976 so that's a long time after this aircraft had, not, had uh, was uh, in service this aircraft came out of service in 1941 to me it's an interesting aircraft because of its capability and its history to me the harrier is an interesting aircraft because i got to fly it and i got to work in it Cooper asks, how are the bombs released? Well, the, the bombs the bombs had a, uh, have a release hook, and that release hook was activated. I, par- I apologize. I don't know whether it was electronically or mechanically on this airplane, but basically there's, a, there's a, uh, a loop on the bomb with a hook that holds it in that bomb cradle, and when you release the bomb, the hook comes out, the bomb falls off.
2: Leonard asks, was this plane pulled out of Lake Michigan?
1: Okay, this airplane was not pulled out of Lake Michigan. It was pulled out of the Pacific Ocean off the coast of California where Bob Gaylor was flying it as a lieutenant. He was working with the USS Saratoga in the Pacific Ocean, and that's where his his accident happened. That's where he had to ditch the airplane. So we pulled it out of the Atlantic Ocean, and you can see here it was in pretty bad shape uh, when, when it was brought up, uh, either because it had been drug along the bottom of the ocean floor or, or just time and circumstance. But the airplane had extensive repair and, and restoration requirements.
2: So we've got a lot of people commenting on the sound of the blues up ahead uh, as they fly. Give us your thoughts on that. Do okay. you miss them?
1: So if, if you ever have a chance to come, and if, if you've been here, you know this. During the summer, we happen to be in the home of the Blue Angels. They are just a half a mile down the road. Before they go to their air shows, And in preparation for their precision maneuvers, they have to do a lot of practicing. And what they do is twice, at least twice a week, they put on a full-fledged practice air show here in Pensacola. So last year, I like to tell people we had 55 air shows. We didn't have 55 air shows. We had 55 rehearsals plus the air shows that they normally put on here in Pensacola. It is wonderful. Any week during summertime when you come here, you'll get to see the Blue Angels, especially if it's a Tuesday or a Wednesday when they typically do their air show practice. Today they're flying. It's Thursday. They obviously decided they needed to practice, and I'm glad they do.
2: So we have one other question about this aircraft. And Henry says, is a gun sight the same as the P-26 U.S. Army?
1: <laughs> so I'm afraid I know that I th- I'm afraid Henry knows more about the P-26 than I do. I don't know if it's the same, but I'll tell you, that's what this is. That's what the pilot was looking through in order to operate the gun and drop the bomb. Can you imagine flying this airplane? Can you imagine flying this airplane and having to look through that, across that at the same time? It'd be sporty. It'd be sporty. Listen, I enjoyed our time together. I enjoyed talking about this airplane. I look forward to talking to you again. We have a whole series of these presentations planned for you. I'm going to turn it back over to Rhiannon, and I look forward to talking to you about another one of my favorite aircraft in the future.
2: Thank you guys for joining us. Join us Tuesday, April 16th for the NC-4 with Captain Tim Kinsella, CEO of NAS Pensacola. Thanks again, and have a great day.
0: Okay, everybody, I hope you guys enjoyed that uh, afternoon performance on the Grumman F-3F Flying Barrel. Certainly a very interesting aircraft and a very awesome one. A very, very beautiful one, too. So, everybody, again, make sure to follow me on Instagram, Stuntplane Podcast. Subscribe to my YouTube channel, Brady Moscopo And we will see you guys next time here on the Stuntplane Podcast. So long for now, everyone.